You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I invited legend investor Chris Broomstrand from Semper Augustus to teach us how to value Berkshire Hathaway. Semper Augustus has an outstanding track record with a compounded annual growth rate of 9.2% after fees since exception of the fund in February 1999. This is compared to 8.1% for the S&P 500. There is no one in the space I respect as much as Chris Broomstrand when it comes to valuating Berkshire Hathaway. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Chris Broomstrand. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Stig Broderson, and this doesn't get more excited. The Berkshire Weekend is coming up, and we have arguably the leading authority on valuing Berkshire Hathaway with us here today, Chris Broomston. How are you today, Chris? Stig, I'm wonderful. It's, um, yeah, really looking forward to after a two-year sabbatical now, seeing everybody in Omaha. It's been too long, and we're not going to get that many more bites at this apple. So um, just counting down a few weeks, this will certainly be great. Can't wait, can't wait for that weekend. But Chris, every year you write these wonderful letters to your clients. And I'm just holding one of those up to, to the camera here. And you can just see how thick the letter is. And I, I'm even, even printing like two pages on one. And in the most recent, you wrote 124 pages plus appendix, if I might add, not only about Berkshire Hathaway, but about so much more. And you kick the, off the discussion with this really interesting look at the S&P 500 as a portfolio. And in doing so, you have included some key valuation figures that stood out to you. Chris, could you please elaborate on this and perhaps relate these valuations to historical figures? Through the lens as though it's a rolled up company, a single entity. And I like to compare that to the market. What you wind up seeing here in the last couple of years as the S&P has been so strong is by a lot of measures, and I run this on a common size basis. So I run $100 in sales and calibrate everything to that. It's, it just makes it useful to really visibly see margin structure. And for that, then all of your ratio and relationship figures make sense. But you know, we're sitting here now with the market closing the year at an all-time high, trading at mid-20s to earnings on a book basis. You're five to book. You're over 300% of sales. You're three times revenues. A lot of those are, are all-time highs. And what's really interesting is profitability has continued to surge broadly for businesses. So you've got a very high ROE. Again, profit margins are an all-time high. So you've got the S&P earning a high teens, let's call it 18 or 19 multiple earnings. A lot of sectors were very strong. The energy sector is largely recovered. And that's always a big swing factor as the you know, oil and gas prices drive higher and lower. So you've really rebounded smartly and very strongly from the pandemic year. You take the 60% of profits that are not distributed as dividends for the S&P 500, and those retained earnings are not driving growth capex. They're not driving R&D. What they're doing is buying back shares. And you've seen roughly 3% of market cap repurchased each year but you're not getting a 3% reduction in the share count, of course, because on the front end, 
executive compensation is so driven by stock options and restricted shares, performance restricted shares, that you've got a 2% giveaway on the front end and again, nearly a 3% repurchase. And so when you've got a market trading for north of 20 to earnings, your earnings yield is less than 5%. It's close to 4% at year end. And you know, I would argue that even with the debt cost of capital very low, portion of those 10 repurchases financed with debt because dividends plus repurchases, the repurchases are in excess of the amount of retained earnings. So we've seen a leveraging of the corporate balance sheet. And I'd argue that's not good for shareholders. And it's a huge advantage to say, yeah, you're retaining 60% of profits, and but you're buying back shares at a 5% or a 4% earnings yield. You're not reinvesting at that ROE. And when you take a, you know, through, through the lens of a Berkshire, the business retains all profit. And over time, they'll make intelligent redeployments of capital. And they really do earn their ROE and retain capital. And you can see, you know, kind of consistently here for the last 20, 25 years, the return on equity of the business hasn't altered much. There's cyclicality to the profits, and you've got to tease out some of the short-term distortions. But the ability to reinvest is a, a huge driver of incremental return and long-term shareholder return. And broadly speaking, these businesses that make up the market do not do that. And they've won the war in the short term by driving the share price higher and making themselves rich. And if your average CEO is on the job for less than five years, you know, the mission is often to get the stock price up and it's not to reinvest for a 20-year and a 30-year horizon. Warren Buffett is famous for saying that most investors shouldn't pick individual stocks, but should rather own the S&P 500 index. Given the current valuation of the index, what are your thoughts on whether most investors should still pursue such a strategy? And could you, in continuation of this, elaborate on the five components you consider to make up the return of the S&P 500? I think he has said that over the years, because I don't think he's comfortable in a position to tell people to buy a single security in an undiversified portfolio. I'd take Charlie's view that he said many times, and generally, you know, here in the last until very recently, the stock has been very undervalued. Berkshire has. It's traded at a deep discount to my appraisal of intrinsic value. And Charlie will say, Berkshire should do better, should do a little better. And I think that's right. I think the notion, and it's correct, and, and I would have the same advice for the uninitiated investor, the non-professional investor, the 401k saver, the strategy, if you will, of dollar cost averaging from a paycheck every couple of weeks, every month, however you do it, and buying shares of a low-cost index fund, eliminating frictional costs, the management fees, is a really intelligent program. You're going to wind up buying some shares when they're expensive, as they are today. You're going to wind up buying some shares when they're fairly priced. You're going to wind up buying some shares when they're cheap. And at the end of the day, you know, you'll have paid a, you know, probably a reasonably average price. And if your very long-term returns because you've paid an average price, mimic the long-term return of the month, which they should, you, know, you wind up with a decent return. And you're not trying to jump in and out. You're not trying to chase different market caps. You're not trying to chase different growth factors. You're not trying to you know, run internationally. You're not trying to outsmart the market. And so for that dollar cost average, it makes sense. For somebody that has serious capital and has saved for the institution that is you know allocating big chunks to passive you, the problem you have is a period like today when the overall stock market is priced 
so richly that the long-term return, 10 years, 15 years, uh, prospectively, stands to be far lower than the long-term return. You know, high single digit, call it a 10% return for the broad market. By my math, you're going to maybe get half of that. And so what I did in the letter this year, and it's, it was, it's an interesting exercise, is took the last 10 years for the S&P and simply broke down the components of where return comes from. And really just five ways. You've got sales growth in dollar terms, which are affected by any increase or decrease in the share count. If companies are net buying back their shares and they've bought back seven-tenths of 1% per year for the last 10 years on average. Again, remember, they're giving away 2% on the front end, but you've had a share shrink and that's accretive to the shareholder. You get the real drivers, and certainly in the last 10 years, the real drivers have been change in the profit margin and change in the multiple to earnings. And add that to whatever your average dividend yield fits out your total return. 16.6% for the last 10 years. And you know, if you break down the components, we've only had sales growth in dollar terms of 3% a year. I think people are stunned by that. When you ask, you know, how fast do you think the top line has grown for this best index in the world? Matches nominal GDP. You add to that the shrink in the share count. And so you've got 3.7% growth in sales per share, but you've had an expansion in the profit margin from just over 9% to 13.4% at year end. The PE multiple, which was the real driver, expanded from a 13 multiple at the end of 2011 to 23.6 using operating earnings at the end of the year. And that added 6.4% to the return. The margin added about 4% to return. Your dividend yield, 2.4. So here you are trading per your prior question with the market stretched by any fundamental measure. And you've now seen the dividend yield driven down to 1.3%. It's not because companies have cut their payout rates. It's because the, the, the price paid for what's now record earnings are so high. So I would conjecture from year end forward, tell me how those five components will progress. And in nominal terms, holding aside any prospects for long-term durable inflation, very high levels of inflation, which would then lead to you know, higher nominal growth in dollar terms, but simply in, in, in nominal dollars. You know, if you assume a 3% continued growth in the top line and your share count's going to shrink by another 7 tenths, 5 tenths, what have you, add to that a 1.3% dividend yield and you can get to a 5% return. But from a 13.4% profit margin, which is an all-time record, you know, we got up to almost 9% in 2000. You were a little over 9% in 1929. We'd never been this high. And there are reasons why profit margins are higher. But to grow from 13.4, you know, convince me how you're going to durably drive the number higher. Similarly, on a mid-20s multiple to earnings, you've got to have some combination of rising from a 13.4 margin and a 23.6 multiple. If you simply hold those two constant, 10 years from now, you make five. And I would argue between here and there, you're probably looking at some period where prices are far below the average. And you know, for that, I went back and took the 10 years ended 1999. I wanted to keep decades consistent, could have run it to the March 24 peak for the S&P and the NASDAQ respectively in 2000. But simply from year in 99, you were close enough to the top of the bubble for government. 
And what you had there was really the best performing decade of all time on record. The S&P 500 did 18.2. Similarly, you started the period from a very low multiple, really what many would say would be the the long-term average of 14 and a half, but you ended the decade, ended 1999 at 28.4. So the multiple to earnings almost doubled. The profit margin ran from 5.4, 5.5% up to 8%. And you really hadn't had the big advent of sherry purchases. And if you recall that last four or five years, the tech sector really led the way. And they were very dilutive. Microsoft had grown their share count by 40% in the late 90s. You know, they're giving boatloads of option shares away and they hadn't gotten around to the repurchases. And so you had an increase in the share count from the using the divisor for the S&P 500 from mid sixes to low eights. And so you were diluted by 20%, which shaved a little over 2% from your earnings. Dollar growth in sales was higher. You know, we weren't that far removed from the late 70s, early 80s inflation. Inflation levels were, were much higher than for most of the past 15, 20 years. Debt levels had grown to what were already becoming a burdensome level, but you had grown dollar sales by about 6%. And so offsetting those dollar sales growth by the shrink in the share count, you got to a three and a half, three point six 3.6% growth in sales per share, which just matches the decade just ended. So your real drivers again, though, were the multiple expansion, which got you 7.2 points out of the 18% return, and the margin got you a little over four. Then you had the luxury of looking at what happened in the next decade. So there you were again with the market stretched on all the fundamental measures that we talked about earlier, and the next 10 years were horrible. You had two bear markets. You had the 50% decline from 2000 to 02 on the S&P 500, the NASDAQ fell 80%. And that, that's really where much of the bubble was. But the S&P fell by 50%. Recovered by 2007, you had the real estate bubble. But then, of course, fell by two-thirds during the financial crisis in 2008 through early 2009. Not cherry-picking, simply running the decade 1999 to 09, you had two bear markets. You'd begun to recover. 09 was a big recovery year. So you didn't, I didn't take the year end period. You know, if you had taken year end 2008, you would have had a 3%, 3.5% decline per year, but you lost about 9% cumulatively and just under 1% per year for that decade. And the drivers, you had reasonable sales growth. You still had higher sales growth for that period in dollar terms than we just experienced for the last decade, almost 5%, 4.8%. Your share count was modestly dilutive. You had some share repurchases in the early part of that decade, but then the financial crisis, the banks got in so much trouble, you had enormous recapitalizations. And so your share count actually rose by about 6% cumulatively. So you lost, the shareholder lost seven tenths of a point. But the drivers were, again, the multiple being very high and the margin being very high at the end of 99. You had a contraction in both of those measures. And you saw the multiple fall from 28 and change to 20. You saw the margin fall from eight to six. And so you lost between those two measures almost 7% of return. That got you basically a, a slight loss. I would expect the next 10 years to look something like that period. In fact, if you were to take rolling 10 year deciles, so if you were to take rolling 10 year periods over the history of our market, you only had 
a handful of periods where stocks even resembled the 16.6% we just got or the 18.2% you got. You did the same thing in 1929. And that was, again, driven by margin and multiple largely. You've had only five years coming off those secular peaks. Not even the secular peaks, again, just end of calendar years, but you've had only five years where the market had produced a negative return. 1937, 1938, 1939, 2008, 2009. And you know, here we are. Oddly, the, one of the very strong periods that did not result in a cataclysmic 10-year period was 1958, but you were coming off very depressed levels kind of post-World War II. But you know, I'd take those three big secular peaks, 29, 2000, and you know, perhaps where we are today. Again, go back to the chair of an investment committee or go back to those that have you know, broad allocations to passive and say, justify and tell me where you're going to grow the margin and the multiple, if you think you're going to get three on sales and dollars and a little bit of a share reduction and a very skinny dividend yield. It's a tough case. If you split and assume you're going to get to a 10% return, then you've got to grow the margin from 13.4 to roughly 18. And you've got to grow the multiple from mid-20s to 30 times earnings. I would take the underside of that bet. And so I think things are pretty stretched. And it was just a Again, I think a really useful way. I think you, you take that kind of analysis and we think about that in terms of businesses and how they work. You know, in addition to trying to figure out how much cash the business produces, you've got to think about multiples and margins and what they're doing with the share and how fast the top line is going to grow and how much you're going to get as a dividend. You put those five multiplicative factors together and you know, that, that's how you get your total return. Well said. And, you know, that's, that's also one of the reasons why we talk multiple times here on the show, whether or not we really should be investing in a global diversified index instead, if you don't have any real opinion on, on the market and still you might feel that the U.S. stock market is, is overvalued. Well, you know, I, I would add I, the, the end of that analysis, well, it, it was a little bit of digging under the hood to determine kind of how much of that, how much of that 16.6 came from the big five tech stocks. And so I included the individual stock analysis for those five. And it was a remarkable 10-year period. That five group collectively on a cap-weighted basis, earned 29.8%. It was stunning. And it didn't come from the factors you would have thought it came from. Well, I mean, it did, but it, it did not come from any expansion in the profit margin as a group. The margin actually contracted. That really was, you started off the period with Microsoft and Apple being very, very large businesses. Google and Amazon and Facebook were not yet giant businesses. And Facebook and Google became very high profitable on a margin basis. But you know, fa- you know, Amazon started off essentially with losses at the outset of that, that 10-year period. They were running a margin of just over 1%. They ended at 5 It's conceivable they wind up at 10 if you kind of put together the moving parts of their business. But broadly, that, that, that almost 30% return really came from an expansion in the multiple. I mean, the, 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 those stocks were inexpensive. Microsoft traded at less than 10 times earnings and wound up trading at, at 38. The group saw the multiple expand from 14 to 33. But the real driver was top-line growth. I mean, that group collectively grew from just under $300 billion in revenues 
with, with the core of that being being Apple and Microsoft at the outset to over $1.4 trillion. You had you had 17% annual growth in revenues per share, and you had a reduction in the share count. And oddly, I mean, Google and Amazon and Facebook were slight net issuers of shares, insiders cashing in their their initial private ownership, still heavy uses of, of options and restricted shares. But Apple shrunk 10 billion shares from the share count. They shrunk their share count by 37%. Microsoft shrunk their share count by over 10%. And so as a group, you had a 21% reduction in the share count, but the driver there was sales growth. And so again, same analysis. If you've got a group now trading at low 30, multiple to earnings, and earning a very healthy north of 20% margin, if you go through each of those businesses and ask how much better can it get, and I think you've kind of pushed the envelope on, on the multiple margins. You know, Facebook may have seen its high. It's going to be hard to drive much higher than 30, so 37 or 38% for Microsoft. Google's running high 20s. Apple's running a you know, 27 or 28% margin. You're just not going to get a lot more there out of the multiple and the margin. And where sales had grown at 18% a year, the number is going to be lower. And I suspect that who knows what, what the hammer is, competition with each other, regulation, simply the law of large numbers. But at 70 to earnings for Amazon, for example, I mean, that, that's baking in, in my opinion, the profit margin will, will you know, perhaps double from where it is. But if it doubles from five to 10, how much will the multiple shrink from 70? And so that, that's the exercise. And you know, I think what you're really going to wind up getting is still healthy sales growth. That group was amazing, it was 8.5% of the overall S&P 500 at the beginning of the decade, and they ended at almost 25%. You had that 29.8% return. If you took the 495 companies that weren't the Fab Five out of the equation, they still earn more than 14%. The remaining 495 companies earn 14.3%, which is still very healthy. But the 13 or 14x return on compounding at 30% for this group of five. If you were an investor and didn't own these five businesses and some combination of them in scale, you really suffered mightily. And they're priced to reflect the success of those businesses. They're five of the best businesses the world's ever seen. But again, I think it's going to be tough to grow the margin of the multiples much from here. So that, that's the same exercise. But that sitting atop the S&P 500, that group collectively is pretty rich. Albeit, it's going to grow a lot faster. I mean, you know, you think about how amazing it is that you got that kind of return out of the overall stock market when sales grew at three percent a year. They're just going to grow slower. You know, they're larger businesses. Berkshire's not going to grow as fast as it did in its first thirty-five years. Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook are not going to grow as fast as they did because they're much bigger businesses. And typically, when growth slows, margins contract and you can you can make that case for the market. You can make that case for individual businesses. And it'll be interesting to see how the ten years plays out. But my guess would be five would be a best case for the S and P, littered with some downturns like we had for that decade post nineteen ninety nine. Definitely, some of the the stars uh, would align for that for that decade and, and see a similar pattern. But Chris, let's uh, shift gears here. The uh, Securities and Exchange Commissions, or the SEC have this form called a 13F, and it's a quarterly report required to be filled by all institutional investment managers. 
with at least $100 million in assets under management. That also includes your company, Simba Augustus. And many of our listeners are avid users of Desaroma, TAP Finance, and other sources where they can see what thoughtful investors like you are buying and selling. So I can't help but ask, what can the public see? And perhaps even more importantly, what can't the public see in those 13F filings? That's a really important question. We've had folks knock off our portfolio. You know, it's public, we file, and it's a dangerous thing because there are aspects that, that are very misleading. You know, we, we all know that because Berkshire listed in their annual letter, that they've got a you know, seven plus billion dollar investment in BYD. Some may know, some may not know, they've got a small investment, you know, just under a billion dollars in Diageo. They own a little Australian insurance operation, IAG. They've got a couple other holdings. They've got the five Japanese trading companies that have been really good investments on really in an expansion in their multiple over the last couple of years. But that's eight plus billion dollars now that you don't see. So Berkshire's got of a $350 billion stock portfolio, there's 15 billion, let's say, that you don't see. So it's it's not that big of a deal in Berkshire's case, but it's interesting. You see with with Daily Journal, obviously Charlie has taken the margin loan and Interestingly, he's, he's just resigned as chairman of the board of Daily Journal, but we'll stay on the board. But yeah, he's got a position in some Chinese companies that had trimmed back his BYD, but they've got, I, I think they've probably got an investment in Tencent. They've got Alibaba and neither of those you see on the 13F. Our filing, we have probably, well, we've got about 20% of our capital invested in non-US headquartered companies. And I've got three that we disclose. So two-thirds of our international holdings, which is a decent chunk, probably 15% of our capital, are not on our filings. The 13F does not include any cash. And other than portfolio implementation, we don't tend to keep a lot of cash laying around. But if a new client comes in that's not an institution, institutions like to be fully invested. But for an individual, a family, you know, we tend to try to only buy when we're buying. And so, you know, there's a period of time that we'll have cash on the books for those clients and that gets rolled up into the composite, but it is not disclosed on the 13F. The other thing is securities that are not in the control of the manager. So we've got a number of clients that have, that have had for years and accounts come in and we get inherited positions and position meets a size threshold, it's got to be filed on the 13F. So you could infer at times that we're buying things when we're actually not buying those things, but we're inheriting those positions into an account that happens to exist on a quarter end filing date. And whether that name stays in the portfolio or not, you know, is really a function of that client relationship. You know, we will keep things for basis reasons, waiting for a tax step up at death, for example. So if you look at our 13F, we really have about 25 kind of core positions in the portfolio, and our 13F has far more names. And a lot of those names are, are in there for tax reasons, and they're not businesses that we've ever bought. I've never bought a share of General Electric in my life, but we've got a little position. My first anchor client had a huge position in GE when we started the firm, and we sold 90% of it. But there's a trailer there in some taxable accounts where, again, kind of this multi-generational planning, we're waiting for a tax basis step up. And the investor that pulls a 13F and sees Semper owning GE or you know, Tom Russo uh, has a partner in the firm and 
they have completely different portfolios. And so you couldn't infer, though, that Tom owns all of those names. They're just dynamics inside of businesses where 13F can be misleading. I think, you know, in most cases, it, it captures a lot. But then in the case of a global investor that has a small allocation to US, you look at the 13F filing and say, well, this guy only owns one or two stocks. But you're missing you know, the 90% of the portfolio that, that exists outside the United States that are not on the SEC's required dis- disclosure list. So there was a proposal a couple of years ago that would have raised the dollar threshold for disclosure. And you know, I, I like to see what, what other investors own, and there's some utility to that. But I, from a management standpoint, I'd rather raise the dollar threshold. If you would have indexed when the 13F filing was required to inflation, a lot of those portfolios that you see on platforms like Datarama would not exist there. You know, unless we were running a billion and a half or I don't even know what the number would be now. Maybe it's $5 billion. You wouldn't have to disclose your holdings to the public. So there's pros and cons, but, you know, buyer beware and observer beware. So it's, I think it's a great question that you asked. Thank you for saying so, Chris. Appreciate it. Berkshire Hathaway has been making moves here in recent weeks. And this is recorded March 30th, so who knows what will happen whenever, whenever this goes out. But first, they were disclosing there are now 14.6% ownership plus warrants, if I might add, of Occidental Petroleum. Uh, at today's stock price worth a bit more than $8 billion. And then the all-cash deal, $11.6 billion of Allegheny. And the latter was the biggest deal since 2016 when Berkshire Hathaway bought Precision Cast Part for $37 billion, including that. Perhaps let's first start talking about Allegheny. The company is involved in insurance business. They also own small operational businesses, steel market, toy factory, even a funeral service. What are your thoughts on the Allegheny acquisition? And to paint some color around this, I could also say it was bought at 1.26 book value, at least based on the end of year numbers, and a 16% premium to the stock price at the time it was announced. I've owned Allegheny since, well, March of 2020. We picked up some names that we wanted to own for years. and well, the insurance sector, well, most things got hammered. So I've had about 2% of our capital in Allegheny, basis in it of under $500 a share. So, you know, seeing it go at 126 a book, it hasn't traded to that multiple in a while. I think Berkshire is getting a, a really fantastic deal. There's, to your point, we'll see what happens. You know, you've got, Another week and you know, get another couple of weeks. There's a shot period where Allegheny's management can go out and find another suitor, not pay a breakup fee to Berkshire you know, if they take another deal. Really, the logical acquirer of Allegheny is Berkshire. Berkshire can do things that other insurance companies cannot do. Similar to the Gen acquisition in 1998, what you'll see if they get this deal closed is. The combination of insurers, Allegheny, that collectively write about $7 billion in premium, $5 billion of that is TransRe, and then another couple billion dollars split between RSUI, which is a really just a gem of a wholesale specialty underwriting operation, uh, and then a little tiny cap specialty that's really not been a great business for the 20 years or so that Allegheny has owned it. But collectively, you're going to pick up $7 billion. You're not going to, Allegheny will have to go less to the retrocessional market and lay off insurance risk because of Berkshire's fortress balance sheet and massive surplus capital. They can retain a lot more of that business. And that's something that no other acquirer could do. Allegheny has a little bit of debt on the balance sheet. You've already seen the rating agencies move 
to increase the debt rating, again, back to the strength of Berkshire's balance sheet. If you take Berkshire's insurance operations, they don't carry debt in the insurers. There's debt held at the parent level and other subsidiaries, but there's no debt in the insurance operation. My guess is Berkshire would pay off the debt. The real advantage, the huge advantage that Berkshire has that, again, no other insurer has is because of Berkshire's massive surplus capital, statutory surplus, ended the year at $300 billion. Collectively, Berkshire only writes $70 billion in premium. 40 plus of that is GEICO. Auto insurers can write $3 a premium for every dollar of capital. So even if you give them two to one, you assign $20 billion of the $300 to GEICO. BH Primary writes a little over $10 billion. They probably write a buck in premium for every dollar in capital. So give it 20, maybe even give it 40 and just double it for grins. And that leaves Berkshire's massive reinsurance operations between National Indemnity and Genry that write about $20 billion. And if you look at their peers, Berkshire's peers in Europe, Munich Re and Swiss Re, they write a buck in premium and for every dollar in statutory surplus they have. But they can't invest in stocks. They've got 4%, 3% of their invest portfolios in common stocks. And every time you get a major disaster or financial crisis, they've got to recapitalize. And so they've just been really lousy businesses, but they overwrite. Berkshire's had this disciplined underwriting all the way back to 1967 with national indemnity. They won't write business when it's overpriced. And in being judicious, the, the surplus capital has built up to such a degree that Berkshire can have a $350 billion common stock portfolio, almost all of which is inside the insurance operations. So what Berkshire's getting in this $11.6 billion acquisition is picking up 13 or so billion dollars in float, but what they're getting is a $22 plus billion investment portfolio that Weston Hicks had. Weston just retired at year end, and he's, he's been just a superb CEO. If your listeners aren't familiar with the Alleghenies, annual letters. You may not see any more annual letters after this year if they close this deal, but you know, Weston wrote, in my opinion, you know, outside of Mr. Buffett's early letters, I think Weston's has been in the last decade, probably the best investment letter written by a public company CEO. It's just superb. Of that 22 plus billion, they had about three and a half billion in stocks. Berkshire is going to flip the proportion and you know, if, if they run Allegheny's investment portfolio on par with kind of how they run the overall insurance operation, you're going to be able to run the stock portfolio up from three and a half billion eventually to maybe 16 or $17 billion. Well, the delta from earning, let's say, 4% on bonds to earning a high single digit return conservatively on a, on a common stock portfolio, you'll pick up $600 million in additional investment income that other insurers can't run that heavy in common stocks. So I think that's a massive advantage. And I think what you'll see, you mentioned some of the businesses, Jazzwares, they've got the steel business. So as a insurer with some surplus capital, Allegheny has built out this Allegheny Capital, which is a collection of private businesses. I think they've done a great job. Weston bought some phenomenal businesses. I know he had a couple guys that were sourcing deals. And so if you were to look at the, at the ongoing profitability of those companies, for a number of years, it was masked by the fact that they were paying, effectively paying finder's fees to these two, to these two brokers to source businesses. 
once those commission tails paid off and once these businesses matured a little bit, you saw the ROE of that collection of businesses, which consumes about 1.3 billion of Allegheny's total capital, companies earning 12 on equity. Weston would tell you, I think, you know, anybody in the game of trying to find control positions in private businesses will tell you how difficult it is today, given how much money is sloshing around in private equity. So you'll likely see every, if Berkshire closes the deal, every dollar of profit not retained, they won't build out that Allegheny capital business. Berkshire will do that from the Omaha perspective for the holding company, and they'll buy more private businesses. But you don't have to grow that Allegheny Capital business in a world of very high control premiums. I mean, there were a couple of deals that were, I think, bidding wars with Markel and Markel One. You know, Tom and his guys have the same problem of you know competing with private equity if you're going to grow out those private businesses. So it just eliminates the need there. And the other intangible, I think, what you're going to get is in bringing Joe Brandon back to Berkshire. Joe had been at Genry, and you had that period where there was a concern that a big insurance deal with AIG was not a conveyance of insurance risk, but a loan. The government put a lot of pressure on Berkshire and on Mr. Buffett to look into it or do something. And Joe somewhat got thrown under the bus and and left Berkshire. I know in the last few years, they've trans-re where Joe was eventually hired by Weston to come in and run the operation, has done some reinsurance deals with Berkshire. So they've gotten back in good graces. Joe's one of the best insurance executives around, and I see him as a, as a nice succession plan, if you will, perhaps to Ajit. Uh, there's a very real notion at, at a point you wind up seeing Greg Abel and Joe Brandon running, tag teaming and running Berkshire Hathaway. So you know that's you know perhaps you're buying a succession plan, but you're paying a very, very low price. My appraisal on Allegheny was higher than the price at which it's going out which is not great. We've got a number of taxable clients and I've got a big gain on that position, albeit only in two years that I'm not thrilled about paying. I would not have minded to see some, a little bit of equity option in the deal. Berkshire could have done that with Berkshire now trading at 150 of book. You know, it wouldn't be that similar to the, the Gen Re deal when they swapped their shares and, and bought Gen Re using only their stock when it traded at almost 300% of book value. But there was room to do that and accommodate the taxable investor. And I'm a little, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed in that. So we'll see, you know, if you get a shop, but all in all, it's a great deal for Berkshire and it's not small. You know, you think about Berkshire's reinsurance operation, again, National Indemnity and Gen Re, they, they write, the two write 14 billion kind of in, in normal premium per year. And so you're picking up five from, from Trans Re, assuming Trans Re continues to write at that rate. The other thing is very interestingly, and very beneficial to Berkshire at the bid is roughly three quarters of Transree's business is proportional reinsurance. You've had a very strong, hard market in the last two years. We had all the hurricanes and weather storms, pandemic costs. And so reinsurance in general had a pretty rough stretch. Well, they've taken price and on their property lines, you know, they've been getting 20% for the last two years. The January renewals were very strong. And in proportional, you tend to see a lag on profitability. So that book of business that's coming with Transree is going to be a lot more profitable than it's been in the last two or three years. And similarly, you've got RSUI and you've got Cap Specialty both taking price. RSUI is underwritten at a combined 
85%. Their underwriting margin has been 15% for the 17 or 18 years that Allegheny's owned. It's just been a phenomenal investment for them. Transree has generated a 10% return. And Cap Specialty, again, was suffering a little bit. They sell into small mid businesses where Berkshire doesn't have a lot of business. So it's a nice compliment. And they're also like getting price. So you know, you're picking up $7 billion of premium volume and a bunch of investment assets with Berkshire's ability to spend those assets differently. And it's a great transaction for Berkshire and it's an okay, you know, good transaction, I guess, for Allegheny. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at NDTCO.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's NDTCO.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. So let's continue talking about Buffett. You know, it's, it's always a pleasure 
reading his letters, even though as opposed to your letter, it does not include analysis of how much the stock price should be. <laughs> so, but all joking aside, Chris, do you follow Berkshire Hathaway perhaps closer than anyone else in the space? What stood out to you, if anything, in Buffett's letters to his shareholders? Well, the letter's gotten shorter. I think it was 11 pages. Thrilled that at 91, Mr. Buffett's still writing. You know, he's, he's taken to thanking folks. I love the orangutan comment about teaching. You know, the collection of Berkshire Hathaway letters over the years have been such a valuable teaching tool. You know, when students and young investors ask me for reading recommendations and books they should read, well, the first thing any investor ought to read is the history of Berkshire's chairman's letters. There's so much there in terms of how business works and I think just an ethical and a moral approach to investing. And so, you know, Mr. Buffett's been a teacher, much like his mentor, Ben Graham, was a teacher. And, and, the, and Charlie's comment about teaching that Mr. Buffett wrote about the orangutan effect, where if you sit and teach an orangutan, your most cherished idea, at the end of the session, you'll have a confused primate as he said it, but you'll, you'll come out of it, you know, a lot wiser for, you know, art, you know articulating your thoughts in a, in a teaching format. I thought that was great. Now, well, there weren't a lot of surprises in the letter. The proxy came out after the annual and, you know, much has been the case for, you know, my two decade plus ownership of Berkshire going back to February, 2000. The proxy and the annual meeting tend to get used by various progressive groups Last year featured a couple of climate proposals. You've got a couple of climate proposals on the books this year. One's an exact repeat. You know, CalPERS is back. And what they'd like to have Berkshire do is have each of the subsidiaries, all of the subsidiaries, checkbox kind of their ESG and their climate report. And yeah, Mr. Buffett in the letter and Greg Abel had a two-page in the appendix that I thought was terrific, highlighting what Berkshire is doing way above and beyond their competitors, the vast majority, almost all of Berkshire's carbon emissions are in the railroad, BNSF, and they're in BHE, the collection of electric utilities and distribution assets. And Berkshire's leading in both businesses. And because both of those companies have public debt, they file their own SEC filings, they have their own Qs, they have their own Ks. They have, for years, they've had very broad, informative climate discussions Berkshire has massively reduced its its reliance on coal. Half of Berkshire Hathaway energy comes from renewables. There's no other utility in the country that's even close to that. And they articulated that. And Mr. Buffett talked about it in the letter again. Greg did. And you know, with these climate proposals again, it's just lunacy. You've got the most insane proposal I've ever seen, and that's a group that would like to see the chairmanship and the CEO position at Berkshire separated. Now. I'm all for separating that role at a lot of businesses, but you won't. You don't do it here until after Mr. Buffett's gone. He has said that once he's no longer serving as CEO, if they take him out in a pine box, if he retires, that role will be separated. So you've got a guy that owns the voting shares of a massive block of the company. He has run it like a founder since 1965. He's run it more ethically more morally than any public company you can see. And why would why the proposal? I, it just smacks of lunacy to me. So I get frustrated with the proxy, as does, I, I know, as does management. And they've got a terrific board. We, we just saw Wally Wheats added to the board, which was great. Chris Davis and Susie had been added as well. 
interestingly, that that was not mentioned in the annual, but you saw it in the proxy. Wally's going to be a great steward. He owns a big block of the stock. He's owned it for years. He's there in Omaha. There's there's just a lot of good. And again, I hope at age 91, I I hope, you know, if Mr. Buffett shrinks his letter by one page per year and we can get a one pager when he turns 100, that'd be super. I'd love to see him in that seat for as long as possible. And just seeing any, he's, he's not, he's not going to write a 30, 40 page letter anymore and teach. His teaching has been done. The wisdom is there if you want to go get it. And I think anybody that goes back and reads the archive is going to wind up being a far better investor for it. And just, you know, seeing the 2021 letter added to the collection of the others, is just icing on the cake for me. To your point there before, especially the, the earlier letters, so much, so much wisdom and it's different now. The letters are different. Perhaps a uh, legacy also plays a role in, in terms of how he's considering what to write and, and how to write it. But let's, uh, let's transition to the next question here, Chris. Inflation has been a hot topic for quite some time. And Buffett was even asked about this during the last annual shareholders meeting. And his response, which is much longer than what I'm going to say here, but I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase here. He said something along the lines of, well, inflation won't be good for Berkshire. We'll manage it. And he also said it will have a different impact on our collection of businesses. Could you please provide more detail on how inflation will impact Berkshire's businesses and investments? Yeah, boy, they're seeing it. Everybody's seeing it now. I don't know how durable it winds up being. I still ultimately shake out in the deflationary camp. I think the notion that we're running on balance sheet credit market debt at almost 400% of GDP up from what was already a nosebleed level of 250% in 2000. The remedy for too much debt really should be austerity and deflation, recession. You work off credit by restructuring to where the creditors become the equity owners. I'm not sure our elected officials or our central bankers have the tolerance for it. So here we are in the meantime. On the backside of the pandemic, everybody knows we've got massive supply chain issues. We have scarcities in energy. We have gone toward this renewables world, trying to get to net zero carbon by 2050. The world is spending a lot of money introducing solar and wind. Berkshire leads there. Again, 50% of their energy operation is wind and solar. On that front, you think about what's going on with electricity prices broadly. You know, right now the single largest feedstock for power production is natural gas. Well, domestically, natural gas prices have doubled. In Europe, they've been up as much as 15x. And the rate at which utilities can pass through their feedstock costs is largely reliant upon regulators. And when the household or the business electric bill gets so high that it's tough to it's tough to live paycheck to paycheck. You start to get regulatory pushback, and so inflation there really does harm an electric utility. You think about the capex that's spent. You know Berkshire has spent over seventy billion dollars in capex against you know mid thirty billions in depreciation expense since they've owned their collection of utility operations. That delta is driving the wind and the solar. It's driving the build out of the grid. And they're getting a regulated return, you know, call it a 10% return on those CapEx dollars. Again, they're far ahead on wind and solar. And so, you know, if you've got the conventional utility that's still very heavily reliant upon coal 
and coal prices have skyrocketed because we have a shortage of power productive capacity. Natural gas prices have risen. Well, you know, Berkshire's in the catbird seat, at least for the moment, because the feedstock cost of the wind and the sun does not go up. That is not an inflationary feedstock cost. Now, the cost of building at your CapEx gets exponentially higher. And whether the regulators are going to let you get a regulated return prospectively really becomes a question. Berkshire does a nice job hedging its other feedstock costs. They're they're not going to be out of coal for a couple decades, but they've already cut their their number of coal plants in half. You've got long-term contracts that are all written with price escalators. Some utilities will have better price escalation clauses than others. But, you know, the utility operation in Berkshire's case sits in a far better position, I think, than the collection of other utilities. And, and that's really the first place that you go. You saw utilities really struggle in the 70s because they couldn't raise prices enough to keep up with inflation. And so the returns on equity capital dropped off. The construction costs simply got very high. The railroad is another place where in the 1970s, it was a terrible industry, extremely capital intensive, maintenance capex always runs in excess of depreciation costs. And it got so bad by the end of the 1970s that under the Carter administration, we deregulated rail intelligently. And the Surface Transportation Board and the government was no longer in a position to set price. And that later got modified to where the industry was really began using a CAPM approach to pricing and and was able to raise prices further. Well, you have you had an executive order a couple of years ago by the Biden administration that's on the books. There was just a hearing a couple of weeks ago that effectively would allow what they call reciprocal switching, allowing a customer, and the ag industry loves this, the chemical industry loves it, the ability to go shop for comp- competing railroad to come supply. Well, if you've got a single line running past your farm, uh, your silo by your chemical plant, you're in. I mean, if, if you're in Burlington Northern's territory, you know that that's the single source provider. Well, insanity to let CSX or the Union Pacific come in and bid to carry freight and use your rail. It'd be like going to General Motors and saying, "You guys are going to need to let Tesla build cars in your plants and subsidize Tesla in that fashion." So we're going down the path of price controls, and you've got a business that's working very, very well. The U.S. rail system is the most efficient rail system in the country, and to see a pivot towards re-regulation of an industry that's working just fine, it is not absurdly profitable. If you look at Berkshire's returns on capital in the group, it earns you know, kind of low teens returns. They are not price gouging. They're running it very efficiently. With all of the variable cost in a rail, the ability to to quickly raise price is not as immediate. So if your feedstock costs there, similar to utility, are rising, it's tougher to pass them through immediately. But you've got contract escalation provisions. Labor is an interesting thing because because, the, the, the household is being squeezed by the rising cost of living big time today. But you've got a fairly substantial union workforce and you've got union wage contracts that are long-term in nature and those don't reset until that contract is up. And so in an inflationary period, you don't really have the immediate variable nature of labor prices rising as quickly as they, as they perhaps should 
in an inflationary environment. So, you know, I think I think the rail's in great shape, presuming we can keep the government out of their affairs and let that industry run efficiently. The MSR group is where you could really have a problem. You think about the kinds of businesses that can weather an inflation are those that have higher operating margins and gross margins that are in a position to be able to pass through rising costs. Berkshire's collection of MSR businesses are largely lower margin businesses and in some cases don't have the immediate ability to pass through to customers because the customer can't bear the price increase. And so you saw some discussion in the MDNA this year about inflationary pressures impacting some of those businesses inside MR. That, that, I think that's going to be worth keeping an eye on as to how that group navigates if this inflation proves persistent beyond perhaps the next six to 12 months and, and you get high inflation for a couple of years. You had a, a really terrific recovery. The, that group, I'd lamented, A, my inability to fully reconcile where the equity was in each of the subsidiaries. And after a lot of years of trying to put the pieces together, I think I've got a pretty good grasp on how much equity is in that MSR group now. They've had a big improvement in, in profitability. They did some restructurings broadly in some of those businesses, and you've seen a big improvement in profitability. We're, we're the group, the MSR group collectively, just posted in 2021 its best record profit yet, and could very well see a decline in profitability this year for some of this inflationary pressure. Then that leaves you the insurance operation, which, you know, thank goodness we've got a property casualty operation versus life. Berkshire's in such a unique position for the stock portfolio that we just talked about. You think about this run up in interest rates and credit spreads, you know, your longer dated, long duration bond portfolios are underwater this year. And that's what you had in the 1970s. Property casualty runs shorter shorter liabilities than does life. And so the typical duration of a property casualty bond portfolio is something like four or five years. It's more like seven or eight years in the life business. You think about the nature of where inflation is rearing its head in property casualty today. Auto claims, very expensive to fix cars. You've probably seen chart of, I've got the chart in my letter of the just used car prices over the last well, over time, but they've just spiked this year to where on some late model cars, you've actually got higher used cars prices than the price of the vehicle when it was new. There's such a scarcity of chips that auto auto manufacturers, deliveries are way down. The cost of getting parts, the cost of labor are very high. The good news about writing shorter tail property lines about your auto lines being short tail in nature. You think about an auto policy. It typically, by the time you have an accident and a claim reported, it gets a, it's almost all paid out at the end of five years. Most of it gets paid in the first year. You know, say two thirds gets paid because you wreck your car, you've got to fix the car. You file the claim, you fix the car, you take it to a body shop, and you're in and out in a month. You're in and out in a few weeks. So another twenty percent winds up getting paid in the second year. When you get into the third, fourth, fifth year, a lot of that then are your medical claims, the medical portion of an auto policy claim. And those tend to take longer to work their way through the courts. You've got, you've got, let, you've got legal inflation. 
But the good news there is as long as you've got an accommodative regulatory environment, ergo, you know, ditto your your, your rail industry and ergo your utility industry, as long as your state insurance commissions understand that your profitability is suffering mightily because of the increased costs of paying claims, you're generally allowed to re-rate. You've seen some rate taken this year uh, that should offset. But if you get a durably high inflation, the 1970s were just as they were with utilities and just as they were with the rails, a really lousy environment, a really lousy business to be in. It was a you know, very high underwriting losses many, many years in the 1970s and early 80s. You think about the retroactive business that Berkshire writes, these long-tail asbestos policies that are capped at a price level. Well, again, if legislation and the cost of claims becomes inflationary, you wind up paying your losses that are capped over a shorter duration period of time, which means Berkshire gets the use of the float for a shorter period of time. So that's a place where durably high inflation would harm the business. I think the business is probably better off in terms of reserves against statutory surplus. Berkshire's the winner by far on that on that platform. So you go back to the bond portfolio that Berkshire doesn't have. I mean, they've got $20 billion in bonds and a $350 billion stock portfolio. They really don't have a bond portfolio. To the extent they've got fixed income plus cash sitting there as insurance reserves, you know, they had $90 billion in cash in the insurance operation alone year end and only maybe 16 of the $20 billion in fixed income. So you do not have duration risk there. If we get durably higher interest rates, Berkshire does not lose on that front. And I think where you could lose on that front is the stock market doesn't do well. You get top five or six businesses make up almost all of Berkshire's stock portfolio. And randomly, I mean, those the, the top five are all up this year. And so Berkshire is going to show an accretion on book value and earnings from stocks, even though the S&P 500 is still modestly negative and the NASDAQ is down by more. Apple was up for the year as of yesterday. The other big, you know, big four or five positions, Kraft, which is carried as an equity method investment, is up for the year. So, But if you can period where stocks don't do well, and they did not do well in the 1970s. That stagflation was not good for the stock market. It was good for a stock picker. It was good for somebody that was able to trade and pick up businesses when they were cheap. The ability to buy the Washington Post and Geico, General Foods, the investments that Berkshire made during that period that were just home runs were done during a period where start to finish, late 60s through 1982, the Dow declined from 1,000 to 778, I think it was. And next to inflation that averaged high single digit, the investor lost 75% of their money. So we'll see. You know, Berkshire loses there if the stock market does poorly and their stocks do poorly. And, but again, that's coming from surplus capital. Most of that stock portfolio is money that Berkshire does not need to have in the insurance operation and the fact that you don't have duration risk in the bond portfolio is a huge win. So net-net, as is the case in almost any affair in any situation, Berkshire wins on the insurance front because it's got the Fort Knox balance sheet. You put it all together and Berkshire's going to suffer. Most businesses will suffer during a period of high inflation, but relatively to their peers in their various industries, and as a whole, they should suffer far less and, and, and I think fare better than the average business in the stock market for that. 
And we can't talk about inflation without talking about the interest rate, because as a result of this inflation, the Fed has already hiked rates and will continue to do so. As many as six rate hikes of different magnitudes have been signaled in 2022 alone. What is the impact on the interest rate increases on Berkshire Hathaway? Well, from a reported profitability standpoint, because you've got over $140 billion in cash in the business that post the Fed intervention at the outset of the pandemic in March of 20, when we took short-term rates back down to zero, you had almost no interest income on your bond portfolio. At 2%, 2.5%, Berkshire's going to wind up making 2 or $3 billion in interest income on its, on its cash reserves, which is great. I treat that differently, as you know. And of Berkshire's cash, you see Mr. Buffett talk about, he's, he's now raised the number from 10 to 20, now $30 billion. He says, of the cash, we'll never go below $30 billion. I think that number is higher than I segregate the, the overall 30. I also presume in the insurance operation, because they don't own a long-dated bond portfolio, and they're going to use cash effectively as the highest mark on capital. I think they're probably going to own cash matching one year's worth of losses actually paid as cash. And you know that number is about $42 billion. So if you take the 30 plus 42, that gets you to $72 billion, which randomly is half of Berkshire's cash at year end. So I presume there's about $70 billion, low $70 billion available for investment in longer dated, longer duration investments investments like Allegheny. And I've long presumed some optionality on Berkshire's cash reserves. And what I do there is presume that the hurdle rate for investment is still at least 10%. But because they're not going to make investments today on a time value of money basis, I presume they'll make 7% returns on that portion of cash that can be invested. From that hypothetical 7% return, I subtract whatever the bill rate happens to be. So if at year end, we wind up with a series of rate increases and we're at 2% on T-bills, I'm only going to assume that Berkshire is going to earn 5%, the 7% minus the 2% on the cash reserves. And I'd, I'd pose the question this way to those that would look at optionality in a different lens. The minute the Fed raises interest rates, is Berkshire immediately more valuable? If the Fed were to raise in the next three meetings 50 basis points at a clip, wind up at 175 on Fed funds, call it 2%. Is that incremental $3 billion that Berkshire earns immediately worth some multiple to that current earnings number? Take the $11.6 billion, presuming it close, closes in, in the Allegheny deal. I mean, that's going to earn more than 10% based on the price that Berkshire's paying for. And again, the ability to flip the investment reserves to more of a common stock approach. But on 11.6, you know, do, it, it, now do you have one or one and a half billion dollars of now immediately immediate earning power that needs to be capitalized at some number? If Berkshire took all of its cash, $144 billion, and invested it at 10%, now you've got an additional $14 billion in actual earnings in the business, do you then capitalize that new $14 billion at whatever multiple you'd capitalize Berkshire's income at? 
I mean, is it worth 18 times that new $14 billion? I'd say no. I'd say my method has, has, has captured. And so when Berkshire invests in Oxy Preferred, the new investment in OxyCommon, the investment in Allegheny, the increase in interest rates, I don't change a thing because I've assumed this time value of money optionality on Berkshire's cash. And so, you know, the Fed, the Fed raising rates will not harm Berkshire in the same way as it will, again, insurers where you've got a rising yield curve on the front end, the back, back end. We'll see where the curve inverts, where it flattens. I just saw, you know, some are now calling for a 10% or, or a 4% 10-year by the end of the year. I, mean, I don't know that you can get that high. I mean, frankly, in my opinion, we don't have a system with debt levels as, as high as they are. $23, $24 billion GDP and on balance sheet debt at $90 billion. We can't go back to where we were 20 years ago at a 5% short end of the curve and 7% long end of the curve. So the market being forward looking, this latest rally in stocks is interesting. It almost seems as though now we're, now we're telegraphing a recession and we finished the taper. So now the Federal Reserve is not in the game of buying treasuries and mortgages on a net basis, but they're not at the same time shrinking the balance sheet. They're simply not net adding to the balance sheet. So now when a treasury matures, they're going to replace that treasury with a new treasury, but they're not going to shrink the balance sheet like they tried to do for a few years leading up 2018. Broadly speaking, you know, if you get three or four or five years of inflation and they've got to continue to defend the currency and raise rates, and every year when you get a CPI adjustment factor on Social Security, the boomers just started retiring and now. We've got that demographic time bomb. If, if the Fed were to raise rates to 4% or 5% on the short end of the curve, we would blow up the economy. You're going to have a very, very, very bad recession. So my guess is in the short term, yeah, they're going to they're run because they've kept monetary policy too loose for too long. Doing what they did in the pandemic, I suppose, for a period of time needed to be done. You've had this white hot housing market. What business have they had up until just last month? continuing to buy mortgages, mortgage-backed securities. That's absolute insanity. You've had housing prices rising by 10 plus percent, a shortage of homes, and the Fed is facilitating the mortgage market. Just, just absolute craziness. So you know, to the extent there's inflation, our central banks globally have had a hand in introducing it. And then at the same time, we have these scarcities. We've got these scarcities in energy because this transition to wind and solar requires so much more productive capacity because those are intermittent sources of power that we don't have enough conventional power. We've flipped a lot of our refining capacity to renewable diesel. Well, a a renewable diesel plant only makes synthetic diesel, does not make gasoline, does not make asphalt, does not make the feedstocks for plastics. And so we've genuinely got a shortage of supply and that's not easily remedied. You know, if the energy industry wanted to flip a switch and ramp up production. And they've been drilling all these wells that are ducks drilled but uncompleted. We don't have a lot of exploration spending going on right in this tight world where there's a demand for energy. There's some rationality to what they're doing, but there's also an inability to do much. You know, bringing labor back, the jobs just aren't there. The workers that are willing to come work are just not there. You can't get steel casing for pipe. So there are pockets there where we're likely to have far higher energy prices. I I wouldn't be surprised if oil averages you know $100 or more per barrel 
for a persistent period of time. If we get a piece on this Ukraine situation, you're going to get oil run back to, but it's not going to drop much lower than $90, which is kind of where it was before this latest crisis. And until you see a lot of spending on supply, things are going to stay pretty tight. And so there are places where you're going to have some inflation for a period of time. But I, I just think Berkshire is in better position than most businesses to weather it because of its fortress balance sheet and durable earning power. And look, we'll see where regulation takes us. But um, we're not going to go to where we were in terms of the yield curve because, because the system can't bear it. We'll blow something up in the meantime. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's LinkedIn.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. We've gone through Berkshire Hathaway, the business model, and in greater detail than I think we've we ever had any guests come on the show and, and talk about. So let's now talk about valuation and expect return. So in your 2021 letter, you have this quote and it says, bearing a deep depression or a hyperinflation, I'd be surprised if Berkshire compounds over the next 10 years at less than 10% per annum. So having said that, could I please ask you to elaborate on that statement and talk a bit about normalized earnings estimates? Well, it's fairly straightforward in that Berkshire's never paid a dividend. Actually, they paid a 10 cent dividend in 1967, but outside of that, they've never paid a dividend. And so if you drill down to what I'd call economic, kind of normalized economic earnings at the business, Berkshire's going to earn effectively an ROE, return on equity capital of whatever the profitability is relative to the equity capital. And book value is going to get more distorted to the extent Berkshire continues to buy back shares north of book value. You have old assets on the books that in a high inflation period are carried at at, at a lower cost. So book value is going to be less important as a proxy for value prospectively. But still, it's a very real thing in the energy operation. It's a very real thing in the railroad, it's very much a real thing in the insurance operation. And those are the you know, main drivers of Berkshire. So retained equity and, and what happens with retained equity is very important. Yeah, I get to an intrinsic of about a little over $600,000 on the A shares and a little over $400 on the B shares. So, you know, 900 billion and change. I think the best I think of all the ways that that I measure Berkshire, and and you can and you've read this in the letter, and those that haven't seen the letter, I go into kind of great detail most years about how I break it out. I, mean, I think the two methods that I use to offset each other, some of the parts of the main subsidiary components, and then I offset that against kind of just the main adjustments that an investor would make from a macro perspective at Berkshire from an adjustment to gap earnings. The energy operation you know, is going to earn a regulated return. You know, three and a half billion in profits to Berkshire. You, you just picked up these Dominion assets. I mean, I think fair value there is is probably eighty billion dollars. I had a mistake in my letter this year on that front because in the closure of the Dominion assets of the pipeline systems that they have, two of them are only fifty percent owned, and of the of the LNG. Cove Point property, Berkshire only owns 25% of that asset. So we all know that in Berkshire Hathaway Energy, you've got a non-controlled interest for Walter Scott's, what's now, sadly, we lost Mr. Scott last year in the fall. His estate is still open. He and his wife's foundation will wind up picking up the 7.9% interest in Berkshire Hathaway energy that he owns. And that's not insubstantial. You know, that's, you know, at, you know, $80 billion, you know, you're looking at, you know, six plus billion dollars. Greg Abel owns 1% of BHE. So you've got this non-controlled interest. Berkshire has a non-controlled interest of of that 
7.9 plus that 1% piece. Well, there, it, within the Dominion assets, you've got $4 billion in assets and $400 million, huh? I mean, oddly, a 10% ROE. You've got a non-controlled interest that the Dominion and other investors have retained. And so I was a little high on my earnings estimate, but you, know, you, take, you take the energy business worth maybe 75 or 80 billion, the railroad earns low teens returns on equity and capital. I I carry it at a range of 115 to $135 billion. If you marked it to market, it's a very similar business in terms of track miles, in terms of assets, in terms of profitability to the Union Pacific. Mr. Market values the Union Pacific, last I looked, at about $170 billion. So my number there is pretty conservative. I carry it at a range of 17 to 20 to earnings. They don't retain capital. A lot of the spending that's taken place on building out parallel track, blowing out bridges uh, for intermodal, being able to dual stack containers, a lot of that's been done. And so where during the early years of Berkshire's ownership of that railroad, they were spending $2 a CapEx for every dollar of capital. The cadence has dropped off in the last three, four years to where they're spending about 150% now. But, you know, I, I think that number again, if Mr. Market is a guy, is fairly conservative. The MSR businesses were just, were just on fire. Last year, the group does $150 billion in revenues. They've got the margin back up to 7% and healthy now, having lagged a bit. The Precision cast parts investment has been a bit of a disaster, but they've made some, some real strides with some of these businesses. And the group is now earning almost 10% on equity again, which is terrific. Again, we'll see what happens with inflation this year. But you know, multiple of a high teens, multiple to earnings, that group is worth a couple hundred billion dollars. And then you've got the insurance operation that can be valued multiple ways, earnings power, or you know, simply marketable securities. I take the stock portfolio and I charge $50 billion against the stock portfolio for what you would call overvaluation. There are moments where the stock portfolio is undervalued. There are moments where it's overvalued, but I'm charging $50 billion against it. I think, and then you've got some, some assets at the holding company. And so you know, you've got almost $30 billion of net assets there. And your investments in craft and the other equity method investments, Pilot Flying J, TTI, Berkadia are held at the holding company. You've got some cash at the holding company. You've got some liabilities at the holding company. But there are assets there as well. You put it all together and you kind of get to your number. I would say from a conservative conservatism standpoint, when you when you add up the profitability of each of those groups, I get to about $48 billion in kind of normalized Berkshire economic earning power. And at 18 times earnings, that's how I get to my intrinsic. You know, no more complicated than that. I would say when you are analyzing the stock portfolio, it's easy to take the market value, make an adjustment for Apple being overvalued or some portion of the stock portfolio being overvalued. But when I'm running through the earning power of that subsidiary, I think most Berkshire watchers know now that we've got unrealized gains and realized gains flowing through the income statement, as opposed to simply realized gains flowing through the income statement, both are obviously flowing through the balance sheet, of course, you've got to back those out. And so, you know, we all know to then assume 
that on top of the $5 billion in dividends that Berkshire earns, which is a portion of the $48 billion, there's another 16 or so billion dollars collectively. So 11 to 12, so we'll call it $12 billion of retained earnings on the common stock portfolio, the portion of profits that Apple retains that they don't pay as dividends. There's $12 billion there. When you add up the $5 billion in dividends and call it the $12 billion in retained earnings, and you've got a portfolio that was trading a little under 20 times earnings at year end. So you've got a 5% earnings yield. If you're adding back the retained earnings, and that's it, and you only presume that Berkshire is going to earn the retained earnings, then you're assuming that the stock portfolio averages a 5% return over time. Maybe that's right. But if the stock portfolio earns 10% a year, then you've got a much, much higher earnings number that will actually accrue through Berkshire's income statement, balance sheet, book value, so on and so forth, by only assuming the earnings yield. In, my, in, in our simple, our earnings yield has ranged at the end of each year for the 23 years we've run the firm between seven, you know, six and a half, let's say, and 9%. So, but our stocks have averaged just right at 12% a year. You're buying stocks for less than what they're worth, they accrue, but also the retained earnings, back to the earlier discussion, the retained earnings are being invested at the ROE of the businesses. And so, you know, an investor should earn more than the earnings yield over time. So there's a conservatism to that $48 billion that is underappreciated, again, because it's only an earnings yield number. The reconciling method that would be used against the sum of the parts, the largest adjustment there is exactly what I just said. It's pulling out the realized and unrealized gains and substituting then simply the retained earnings of the portfolio. I further strip out whatever your under, underwriting results are in the short term, and I add back in a presumed 5% pre-tax underwriting margin. So on $70 billion in premium, Berkshire would earn $3.5 billion in a normal year. On an after-tax basis, maybe $2.7 billion of after-tax profit that the insurance operation would earn as a portion of that $48 billion. You would also, I make a small charge for the extent that I just assume companies are only going to earn 4% on their investment assets on their pension funds. And if Berkshire assumes a 6.4 or 6.5% return, there's a, about a $400,000 adjustment there. You know, Mr. Buffett has talked about, and this would be correct, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm fully on board with, but to the extent other intangibles, not goodwill, but intangibles are being amortized, you've got to add back a portion of those intangibles to net income. And that's, you know, about a billion dollars. Customer lists is a portion of any premium on an acquisition. Back in the day, up until 2002, you'd put a lot of goodwill on the balance sheet, and goodwill tended to be amortized over a period of 40 years. And we changed the accounting there, and so goodwill is no longer amortized. So you see the accountants put more into other intangibles. And you know there are certainly intangibles that lose value. Patents expire, for example. And so you've got to play a nuance. I'm not sure 100% of intangibles should be added back, and, and I don't add 100. Um, Mr. Buffett suggests that you should. And so you, you run all that together, and you, know, you wind up essentially with the same $48 billion in, in earning power for the business. 
Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. And if you're the kind of person who, whenever you read a uh, like a crime novel, you you always read the last page to figure out what's going to happen. You know, that's sort of like how I felt whenever I picked up your letter and I I found page ninety six and I looked at the uh, intrinsic value assessments you have made there through your different approaches. And I would just like to give a handoff to to the last time we had on your show. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes where you go through each of your approaches and specifically emphasize the two-prong approach. And at year-end numbers, you come up with a valuation of $949 billion or equivalent to a B-share price of 429. And of course, whether it I said 46 or 26 or 29 there at the end, it's uh, we're talking about approximate numbers. So please don't take this at face value with two decimal points whenever we talk about intrinsic value. For the listener out there who might be a bit overwhelmed with all the numbers and the, the detail of which you are describing your valuation approach, what's the simplest way for a new intermediate investor to assess Berkshire's value? That two-prong method Mr. Buffett introduced, I think it was in the 1995 letter. And it was in for five years, and then it was out for a period of time. I think it came out for five years, and then it was back in. And the methods changed. But essentially, all you're doing is taking the operating earnings of the subsidiaries on a per share basis, and you capitalize those at some number. And then you take the marketable securities, and those are worth what you think they're worth. You could charge against them for float. You could charge against them for the fact that you think the portfolio is $50 billion overvalued. But essentially, you have that in a nutshell. In the early iteration of doing this, underwriting profits were included using the Berkshire method for five years. Berkshire bought Gen Re. You had a couple of years of really nasty underwriting results. And all of a sudden, the underwriting results were so bad in the late 90s that it dwarfed the operating earnings of the business. Now, back then, Berkshire was largely insurance. They hadn't bought the railroad. They hadn't bought the utility operations. The majority of the earning power of Berkshire came from the insurance operations. And so when your underwriting profitability was negative and you lost money on a combined basis, those numbers were pulled from the return. When they made a reappearance, they were excluded. And so Berkshire had a 13, 14 year, now longer period of time where they underwrote profitably. We've long assumed that Berkshire is going to underwrite, to my earlier point, at a 5% pre-tax operating number. And so again, on 70 billion in premium, you know, my final addition to my two-prong approach is, is backing out whatever they actually make on an underwriting basis and adding in 5% pre-tax and capitalizing that a conservative number. The also at a point cash within the subsidiaries was excluded using the Berkshire method. It wouldn't count the little bit of cash held within the railroad and the energy operations, which today is only about $4 billion, but it would exclude the cash held within the finance businesses that's more meaningful. All of the cash got rolled up and included, and I think that's probably fine. And you're you're really talking about rounding errors and, and using the difference. So you know, if you take the operating earnings of the subs, you get to about $27 billion in earning power now. And from that, you have to exclude any earnings on the marketable securities, on the stock portfolio, the cash, and the bonds. Otherwise, you wind up double counting, right? Because you're going to count the value of the assets over there as opposed to the earning power on the assets. So on $27 billion, let's call it, you know, north of 27, before the change in the tax code, TCJA at the end of 17, 
I was multiplying, I was using a 13F cap factor against earnings to get to my 18 to earnings. Well, all of a sudden, when the tax rate changed from 35% to 21%, if those profits were durably retained, you got to capitalize them at a different number to get to 18 times. And I don't think Wall Street investors really caught on to that notion immediately that all of a sudden, because you've now got more, because the world's obsessed with EBITDA and not net income, but you know, net income and free cash are a real thing. And so I, I flipped the, the cap factor to 15.4 multiple to pre-tax earnings. But that gets you to that portion of the number. And then I simply take the marketable securities, make any adjustment to the degree securities are over undervalued, and add back in a little bit of margin for underwriting. Could be more conservative and assume break-even underwriting over time. Could be more conservative and back out the cash. But I think for the investor, it's pretty easy to get your mind around operating earnings from the subs because they're still broken out in the MDNA. And whatever you think the marketable securities are worth and pretty straightforward. So it no, it eventually was taken out. It just got too cumbersome as moving parts changed here and there. And I was critical about it at the time. And in retrospect, it really didn't matter. So, but it, it, it hasn't been in the letter for several years, but I've got it in, I've got it in my letter and I've got the history of it back to 2005 or 2006. And you can kind of see that progression. All of the methods, my, my adjustments to gap earnings, my sum of the parts or normalization factors. There is an additional, not even in the sum of the parts, but in my in my gap adjustments to earnings that I didn't mention. Berkshire's utilities and railroad immensely benefit from the use of accelerated depreciation for tax purposes. Berkshire pays way, way less, far, far less in cash taxes then it reports as gap. And so you've got this big deferred tax liability that now in cumulative sums to about you know 90 something billion dollars. Some of that is the offset for unrealized gains in the stock portfolio, but you've got a good chunk of it that simply represents the fact that we're accelerating CapEx immediately for tax purposes and those taxes are eventually paid. Well, there's an absolute time value of money to the fact that you're physically writing a, a far smaller check to the government and you're going to pay them 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. So I pick up a little bit of that differential as well in my normalized number. And for conservatism's sake, you would you know, perhaps exclude that. You know, by the same token, for those that would jump on that, you know, the, the optionality of cash, again, if you're, going to, if you're going to exclude the optionality of the cash, then when you're running the ROE of the business, you better take the cash out of the business and only apply the operating earnings against the assets that are employed in the production of that portion of the profitability, and then do whatever you want with whatever you think cash is going to earn over time. But you can't assume it's zero. If you assume cash was worth zero, then you have $150 billion less of Berkshire value than you have. That seems silly to me. So I just, I conflated about three moving parts there to really make things not straightforward for the listeners. But yeah, I think that two prong is still pretty useful and, and I'll keep it in the letter. I just want to highly recommend uh, your letters, just like I did last year. It's absolutely uh, fantastic. If you like me and like Chris or avid followers of Berkshire Hathaway, that's, this is definitely the, the letter to read. But with that said, Chris, where can the audience learn more about you and, and Simper Augustus? Yeah, we have a history of letters on the website, semperaugustus.com. I've got a tab for letters and there's another tab for podcasts and interviews. 
when this is published, we'll post it immediately to the website. So our interview, our talk from last year is up there, a handful of others. And there's enough between the letters going back to 1999, there, there's a lot of literature there. And I'm on Twitter. I, I still regret maybe that I'm on Twitter, but I think I'm at Chris Bloomstrand. I don't think that's cap sensitive. Website's probably the best place to, to find us. Perfect. And Chris, I can just say, like, like you also mentioned in the introduction, it's just impossible to find a better person to talk about Berkshire than you. I'm sorry I can't meet up with you and your crew for this meeting. I would highly encourage everyone who, who are going to the meeting. I know a lot of your listeners of this podcast would be going. It's been absolutely a pleasure speaking with you here today, Chris. I hope we can do this again next year. Yeah, I count on it. And I'll count on seeing you in Omaha in uh, 2023. 2023 or bust. <laughs> Challenge accepted, Chris. Thank you so much for your, your time. Have a good one. Thanks, Dick. I appreciate having me on. Been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.